Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and it can be found on page 965 in the Pew Bible. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Okay, good morning, everybody. Hope you are doing well this morning. We're continuing on uh, in our sermon series on 2 Corinthians. And uh, last week, Pastor Manfred took us through verse 18 of chapter 3. And at the start of, of the beginning of the last week, as I was preparing the sermon for this morning, I had planned to use the last verse of Pastor Manfred's uh, passage, uh, verse 318, as a launching pad into chapter 4. But my launch pad kept getting bigger and bigger until I finally just decided I should turn it into a sermon in itself. So we're just looking at verse 318 this morning. So with Pastor Manfred's permission, I'm going to borrow uh, the last verse from his passage, and we'll pick up chapter 4 next week. And there are two points that I want to make from this verse. First, we become who we are when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And second, we become who we are not when we see the glory of God in the faces of the world. Now, you know when you're flying and right after takeoff, the pilot will sometimes say something like, we're going to encounter a bit of turbulence as we ascend to our cruising altitude, so we're going to leave the uh, fastened seatbelt signs on, but once things settle down, the flight attendants will come out and serve the drinks. This sermon is a little bit like that because we're going to experience some theological turbulence as we ascend to our cruising altitude of relevance. So for those of you who are nervous flyers or uh, nervous theologians and you're not interested in all the theological turbulence, just bear with me. There's going to be a bit more of that this morning than might be typical, but we are going to get to the cruising altitude of relevance, I pray. So just hang on there and we'll bring out the drink carts in a little bit. All right, we've got a good a bit of ground to cover, so let me just jump right in uh, to our text this morning. In verse 18, Paul talks about beholding the Lord's glory with unveiled faces. Now, what is he talking about? From the larger context, we can see that Paul has in mind the story of Moses' shining face from Exodus 34, chapter, uh, chapter 34, 29 through 35. And Pastor Eric had us read this passage a few weeks ago when he was preaching from verses 7 through 11. We didn't linger on it too much, so I want to go back again and look at Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35, so we can get our head around what Paul is saying here in verse 18 of chapter 3. So turn back uh, in your Bible to Exodus 34, verse 29, which fortunately you can do because you've brought your Bible with church to you today. Uh, with church of you today, so which is great. If you don't have a Bible, though, you can find one in the pew rack in front of you. It's page 75 of the pew rack Bible. And uh, Exodus 34, 29 through 35. I'm going to read it. You just read along with me. Let's uh, get our head around this story here from, from Exodus. When Moses came down from the Mount Sinai, 
with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, his, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin on his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken, all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So this is an interesting story here from Exodus 34. And Moses, as you may know, if you've uh, grown up in the church, you know that Moses was the giver of the covenant of God's people. We call the covenant of Moses the old covenant as Christians because it's superseded by the new covenant of Jesus. But when Moses gave the covenant, that was the only covenant that they knew. And so they didn't call it the old covenant. They just called it the covenant or the covenant of Moses. And so Moses is up there on Mount Sinai getting the covenant and he brings it down on these tablets of stone. And the surprising thing about this covenant, shocking thing even, is that as Moses comes down off the mountain, having spoken with God, his face is glowing. He had entered into God's presence. He had spoken with God face to face. And while he was in God's presence, his face had soaked up God's glory and had begun to glow. So he comes off the mountain and the people see his going face and understandably they run away in fear just like you and I would probably run away in fear. So Moses calls them back. He speaks to them and then he puts a veil over his face. But every time Moses would carry out his priestly duties which involved going into the tabernacle and receiving words from God, he would take his veil off. And he would speak to God face to face with an unveiled face. And his face would soak up the glow of the glory of God. And in 3.18, Paul is referring to this incident in Moses' life. And he's saying that we Christians are like new covenant versions of Moses. We all, like Moses with unveiled faces, enter by the Spirit of God into the heavenly tabernacle into God's presence, and we behold his glory in the face of Jesus. And as we behold his glory in the face of Jesus, our own faces are transformed to reflect that glory. Now, that's a remarkable truth. But there's another element of verse 18 that I think is particularly mind-blowing. And here's the really mind-blowing thing about verse 18. When Paul says that we are beholding the glory of God, he uses the unique Greek term katarizo that we translate beholding. And it's a word that's used only one time in the Bible, and it means to behold as in a mirror, to behold one's reflection in a looking glass. So one translation reads, to behold as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. So Paul is not simply saying that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. 
He's saying that when we look into the face of Jesus and we see his glory, it's like looking into a mirror. Now let's pause here and think about what Paul is saying. And here's where the ding goes on in the cabin of the airplane and the fasten seatbelt sign comes on and your pastor says to take your seats because this is where we're going to encounter a little bit of theological turbulence. I want you to picture this with me. Maybe picture getting ready for church this morning. You're, you get up in the morning, you stumble into the bathroom, you turn on the faucet, you're getting ready to wash your face, and as you look up into the mirror, there's the face of Jesus staring back at you. Now, seeing the face of Jesus is shocking enough, but what's even more shocking is that you're not seeing the face of Jesus through a window or on the bathroom TV. I don't know if you have TVs in your bathroom. You probably should not, but let's say you do, you know, <laughs> or in a painting. You're seeing the face of Jesus in your mirror, which means that when you get a surprised look on your face, as you no doubt would, the face of Jesus in the mirror gets a surprised look on his face. And when you raise your eyes in disbelief, the eyes of Jesus are raised in disbelief. And when you step back in surprise, the Jesus in the mirror steps back in surprise. Because the image in the mirror is not just an image, it's a reflection. Which means that even though the image in the mirror is Jesus, somehow it's also you. And then to carry Paul's idea even further, he says in verse 18 that as we behold the glory of Jesus in the mirror, we are transformed into that image that we're seeing. So as you stand there in your bathroom, staring into the face of Jesus in your mirror, your face outside the mirror begins to change and is moment by moment transformed to become like the face of Jesus inside the mirror. Until finally, as you stare long enough, the disparity between your face outside the mirror and Jesus' face inside the mirror is gone. And the two faces have become one. And you have become an image of the image that you are seeing in the mirror. Now, of course, Christian transformation doesn't happen like that in our bathrooms, but in a metaphorical way, this is what Paul is saying. And that's how Christian transformation works. As we stare into the mirrored face of Jesus, we are transformed into the image of the Son of God, which is what we were created to be. Which means that as we are transformed into the image of Jesus, we are not just becoming more like Jesus. We are at the same time becoming more like ourselves. More like who we were always meant to be. Now this is all very surreal and abstract. So let me see if I can bring this down to earth a little bit. Starting in the late 1950s, psychologists and social scientists began developing a theory of child development called attachment theory. Now, Jill and I learned about attachment theory during our adoption process with Maley. Perhaps many of you are familiar with the term as well. It's increasingly found its way into the mainstream. There's attachment theory in dating. There's attachment theory in this, attachment theory in that. It's all over the place now. 
And the basic idea of attachment theory is that when we are born into the world, we have no inherent capacity to make sense of ourselves or the world around us. When I'm a child, I have no idea what it means to be a human being. How could I? I haven't even seen a human being before. What kind of creature am I? What do I exist for? What should make me happy? What should make me sad? I have no way of knowing these things. So as a child, I intuitively attach to my primary caregivers, most naturally my parents, and I watch how they act out their humanity and how they respond to the world. And that helps me make sense of who I am as a human being and how I should respond to the world. And I think all that makes good intuitive sense. Of course, we learn about ourselves and our world from our primary givers, prayer givers, caregivers, of course. But what social scientists have also discovered is that the attachment process begins the moment of birth and is based on the facial mirroring that the primary caregiver, most typically the mother, does with the child. It turns out that the infant's brain is literally shaped and transformed as the baby stares into his mother's face. And here's the amazing thing watches her mirror his own facial expressions. So we've all seen this, and moms do it naturally all the time, especially with little infants. The little baby, the little infant is sad and sticks out his lip, and what's the first thing that the mom does staring at the little baby's face? She sticks out her lip. Oh, baby's sad, you know, this guy. Right? <laughs> right. The baby's happy and smiles, and so the mom smiles. The baby's angry and frowns, and mom frowns. Oh, the little baby's upset. You know, these sorts of things, right? I think dads do this too, but we don't do it nearly as often or as well probably as moms do it. And all this maternal interaction is happening, and as the, all this maternal interaction is happening, the child is beholding, as in a mirror, his own facial expressions in the face of his mother. And it's through this process of facial mirroring that the child is learning how to navigate his own emotions and his future human relationships. So the baby feels sad, and at first he doesn't know what sadness looks like. But then he notes that whenever he feels sad, his mother, he notes his mother's frowning face. And he comes to associate the feeling of sadness with a frowning face. And in this way, he learns how to both express sadness and how to recognize sadness in others. Or he feels happy, and at first he doesn't know what happiness looks like. But then he notes that whenever he feels happy, he sees his mother's smiling face. And so he comes to associate happiness with a smiling face. And in this way, he learns how to express happiness and how to recognize happiness in the face of others. And then once mom's facial mirroring has taught the child how to express happiness and sadness and how to recognize happiness and sadness in the face of others, she will eventually start to use her face to change the child's emotions to match her own. The infant is needlessly sad about something, but mom smiles and coos at him, and mom's happy face changes baby's sad face into a happy face. 
On my wife's side of the family, all the women are very proud of their capacity to change the emotional state of unhappy babies into happy babies through making smiling faces at them, right? It's one of the great, uh, the great triumphs of the, of the human mother is to be able to change an unhappy baby into a happy baby by smiling at it. Or the infant, perhaps, is happily doing something naughty and mom frowns at him and her unhappy face changes his happy face into a sad face. So not only does the mom's face teach the child about the emotions he's feeling, her face also teaches the child about the emotions he should be feeling. Which is to say, in the mirroring process, the mom is teaching the child to be what she, the mother, is. A fully functioning, emotionally healthy, well-adjusted adult. Which means that in facial attachment, the child is seeing his mother's, in his mother's face both who he himself is and the human adult that he is destined to become. Now, quite a few studies have shown that babies who have been deprived of this facial mirroring process will often struggle to know how to understand themselves and how to read and relate to others. And as they grow up into adulthood, they're going to need extra help learning things that they didn't learn from the mirroring process that should naturally happen from a mother. And I bring up attachment theory here because what is true on a human level is also true on a divine level. In his own first century way, Paul is laying out for us a model of divine attachment theory. God is the primary caregiver of humanity. And as we stare into the glory of God in the face of Jesus, we are seeing reflected back to us a picture of who we are and who we are meant to be. Just like the newborn infant sees who he is and what he should be in the face of his mom, so too we as humans see who we are and who we should be in the face of Jesus. And just as the child is transformed moment by moment by staring into the face of his mother, so too we are transformed by staring into the face of Jesus. And this is what Paul means when he says that we are being transformed in the image that we see reflected back to us in the face of Jesus. When we see the face of Jesus, we are beholding in a mirror who we truly are. And that really, that should, that should blow our minds. The church fathers often spoke of salvation in this sort of way. That Jesus became as we are so that we could become as him. It's this cosmic, soteriological, divine mirroring process. God in the face of Jesus is changing us to be his children. Not just in name, but in actuality. He is helping us grow up into all that he has created us to be. That's why John will say, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We really are being made into the children of God as we gaze at the face of Jesus. In Romans 8, 29, Paul says that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, to become brothers and sisters of Jesus. And that doesn't just mean that we will finally stop sinning. That means that we will become everything a human being was created to be 
but isn't yet. And the great news about this transforming process is that it begins even now through the Spirit. Paul tells us that this transforming process comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we gaze upon the face of Jesus, the image of his face transforms us from one degree of glory to another through the work of the Spirit. All which is to say, the key to growing up in Jesus is beholding the face of Jesus. Now, there are many ways that God has revealed the face of Jesus to humanity so that we can behold his face and grow up into all that we were meant to be. Perhaps one of the most fundamental ways that we can grow up into the, seeing the face of Jesus is through the scriptures. Jesus says that the scriptures testify, point to him, that every verse through the Bible is ultimately pointing us to the face and the person of Jesus Christ. So as we read the scriptures and dive deep into the scriptures and marinate in the scriptures, we are being led into the person and face of Jesus. Or the rhythms of the church. We often like to say that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, and there's truth in that. But it's not that Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a religion. It's not just a religion. But Christianity is an institutional force in the world. It has rhythms and practices and ordinances and sacraments, and it has all sorts of things that it does kind of externally that help shape and form us. And we see in the institution of Christianity pictures of Jesus as we enter into the rhythms of the church. Perhaps the most, most uh, notable way would be in the sacraments or the ordinances. As we even observed in the first service here as a church, the baptism of a, of a person entering into, as it were, solidarity publicly with the, with the person of Jesus Christ. We die with Christ in baptism. We rise with Christ in baptism. We're seeing a picture of the work and face of Jesus in baptism. We're also seeing it in communion. Every time we gather together and we partake of communion, we're, we're partaking of our nearness and our presence with the work of Jesus, and he draws near to us. We see also in the institution of the church within it the living, pulsing life of Jesus in the faces of other Christians. So that as I look at your face, what I see in your face is a face that is being transformed by the face of Jesus, and I see the face of Jesus in your face. And as you look at my face, hopefully you're seeing in my face the, a face that is being transformed by the person of Jesus, and you're seeing Jesus in my face. And so that we are conveying to each other with our unveiled faces the face of Jesus and the glory of God to each other. But the point of all of this is that we have to see Jesus in order to be transformed. Just coming to church, even just reading the Bible, even just visibly seeing each other in the flesh, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're seeing Jesus. When Jesus says that the scriptures testify to me, you know who he was saying that to? He was saying it to the experts in the scriptures, the Pharisees. And they had missed the point of the scriptures. They didn't see Jesus in the scriptures. And we can be experts in the Christian religion and we can be expert in the scriptures and we can be experts in Christian community. But if the spirit of God does not open up our eyes to see Jesus in these ways, then we're going to miss the whole point of what Christianity is about. 
God reveals himself to us in all of these faces in the church and in the Christian life and in the scripture and in the sacraments because he wants us to, to not just go through the motions, but to, by the Spirit, see the face of Jesus and be transformed into that face. And thinking about divine attachment and looking into Jesus' face, there's one more important thing that should be said here. Think about the very first look that a child sees or should see on his mother's face when he comes into the world. That moment when the nurse hands the baby to the mother and the mother takes the baby in her arms and she brings his face up close to her face. What is in that look? It's love. That's what's in that look. The first look is always a look of love, unconditional, unmerited, completely accepting love. So listen, as you look into the face of Jesus or you look for the face of Jesus to teach you who you are, know this, who you are is loved. Jesus' love accepts you just as you are. He won't leave you as you are. Just like a good mother, his accepting love will grow to include perfecting love. It will be a transforming love. But if you're afraid to make eye contact with God in Jesus, just know that what you will find there, the first time you get the courage to turn to the Lord and look him in the eye, will be love. Eternal, unmerited, completely accepting love. Now, really, I feel like we could just end the sermon there, but Taylor is always complaining about the length of my sermons, and I presume that means they're too short. So I'm going to move on to this second point. If we become who we are when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, then the inverse is also true. We become who we are not when we see the glory of God in the faces of this world. I've already stolen a verse from Pastor Manfred, so I'm going to reach back and steal a few verses from Pastor Eric's sermon a couple weeks ago, uh, verses 7 through 11. And in 7 through 11, Paul makes the point that the glory that we receive from God through Jesus surpasses the glory that Moses received. Look here in verses 7 through 11. Let me just read them real quick, follow along. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will, that, will what is permanent have glory." And all throughout these verses here, 7 through 11, but then even in the verses that precede it, Paul draws a contrast between the, between the new covenant's internal, heavenly, and eternal work of the Spirit and the old covenant's external, earthly, and tempor temporal work of the law. The covenant of Moses did have glory, Paul says. I mean, his face shone after all. And the glory on Moses' face 
was even divine glory. But Paul's point is that the glory of God in the face of Moses was lesser than the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The glory of God in Moses was just a passing glory, a fading glory, an external glory, precisely because the things that conveyed the glory, the shining face of Moses and the old covenant, were themselves passing and fading and external. And Paul knows that if we humans stare into the faces of the visible, temporal, fading glories of this world, we will become nothing more than temporal, fading glories ourselves. We will never become who we were truly meant to be. So here's a question for all of us, but perhaps especially a question for those of you who are not Christians. Whose face do you look to as your primary caregiver? Whose face do you calibrate off of? And whose face gives you a picture of who you are and who you are becoming? God's earthly glory presents itself to us in many faces. There's the face of wealth, face of popularity, physical safety, family, marriage, children, the face of beauty, the face of physical strength, athletic prowess, and so forth. And social media is especially full of God's earthly glory. I'm not talking here about all the toxic things that we find in social media. I mean, all the truly glorious things that we see on social media. Happy, beautiful families, happy, beautiful faces, happy, beautiful bodies, and all the truly beautiful things of this world are not wrong. And they do, in fact, have a share in God's glory. Just like, Moses's, just like Moses had a share in God's glory. But when we find our identity, our safety, our sense of self in God's earthly glory, when we stare long and open-eyed at the many faces of this fading world and we soak in their fading glories, we never become anything more than the fading glories of earth. We will decay with our wealth. We will be forgotten with our fading popularity. We will age and pass away with our passing beauty. The prophet Jeremiah, he was rebuking Faithless Israel. Faithless Israel was staring into the faces of the wrong gods. They had stopped looking at Yahweh, their God, and they were looking at all the pagan gods. And the prophet Jeremiah rebukes them. And he says of the faithless Israel that they went after worthless things and they became worthless themselves. Because we become what we stare at. The faces of this world cannot help us become who we really are. Only the faces of Jesus can teach you. Only the face of Jesus can teach you who you are and what you were made for. So don't fix your hope, your face, on the fading faces of this world. I'm going to close with, with this. I was talking with a friend who, at the time, was exploring Buddhism. And if you've read much about Buddhism or are familiar with it at all, you know that there's quite a bit of stuff in Buddhism that is good and laudable 
and has a lot of touch points and shares a lot of values with Christianity. But the primary problem with Buddhism is that the God of Buddhism has no face. The God of Buddhism is an impersonal, faceless force of nothingness. Do you know what Buddhism tells you that we are? It tells us that we are nothing. It tells us that we are non-being. I'm not trying to be uncharitable to Buddhism. This is what Buddhism itself would teach us. The logic of Buddhism is that everything that exists, all that is visible, is just fading and temporary and destined to be nothing. And all that we can see came from nothing and will return to nothing. And so the values and ethics of Buddhism teaches us that we might as well get along with the program of nothingness and go peacefully into that good night of nothingness. So Buddhism teaches me how to embrace my faceless nothingness. And that's the faceless message of Buddhism. Now, Buddhism is right about the world. It teaches us not to trust in the world because all of its glories are fading and they end only in nothingness. But Buddhism doesn't work as a religion any more than it would work to raise infants with faceless parents. Human beings need an eternal, personal, divine caregiver to tell us who we are. This world and all that it contains cannot truly tell us who we are. And despite what our, cultural, our culture of expressive individualism tells us, we can't tell ourselves who we are either. Babies don't come out of the womb able to create their own identities and sense of what it means to be a human being. They have to be taught that. And if they're not taught that, they become deformed in some way. We need to be taught who we are by a higher, transcendent, divine, cosmic truth with a face that tells us who we are. Good parents are a great start, but not even good parents can fully tell us who we really are as human beings because they too are part of the fading glory of this world. It's a book written by a number of psychiatrists, social scientists, and uh, they have a section in the book called The Theological Significance of Facing. I'm talking all about this mirroring process and how we are developed through the face of our primary caregiver. Listen to what they say. They say, ideally, the face of the primary caregiver provides an affirming presence that orders the cosmos of the infant. This singular face of the primary caregiver brings peace to the child's world in a way that no other face can. But human caregiving is never ideal. And soon the baby learns that this face of their primary caregiver often goes away, causing anxiety of cosmic proportions. And as the child grows to adulthood and agonizes over issues of ultimate concern, she continues to long for a faithful and loving face that will never go away. And only the face of God can satiate this existential desire. Humans were created to see the face of God. And it's only the eternal, 
unending, loving face of God, of Jesus Christ, that allows us to understand who we truly are and who we have been destined to be. So turn to Jesus and look for his face of love and let his face of love transform you into the person of love that you were created to be. We, uh, we sang at the beginning of the service, we sang the song, God with us. The amazing thing about the story of the Bible is that when we come into this world, God doesn't just leave us out there on the table and hope that we find our way to his face. He, he brings us close to us, to him. And he looks down into our face with his face. He draws near to us. He is with us. Because it's only in his presence that we can see his face. So the glory and the good news of the gospel is that God has brought us into his presence. He has drawn near to us to reveal himself to us. I'm going to pray and we're going to re-sing that song together. God, thank you that you've given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That you haven't left us to ourselves to figure out who we are, what we should be as men, what we should be as women, what we should be as children or mothers or fathers or what we should be as human beings. But God, you have revealed to us who we really are in the face of Christ. Help us to see him, Lord. To see him in all the many varied ways that you present his face to us. In the scriptures, in the church, in the faces of each other, in the sacraments, Lord, I pray that you would help us to always behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have that you've drawn near to us and that you are with us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.